matters of the mind. Are you looking for answers, ideas, or just want someone to listen to you so you can vent? Join Dr. Peter Sacco as he discusses what matters most, issues that surround the mind. He gets to the heart of the matter when it comes to issues involving anger, depression, addictions, fear, anxiety, relationships, sex, abuse, bullying, and everything concerning you. And now, here's your host, Dr. Peter Sacco. Well, hello there, and welcome to Matters of the Mind, where everything and anything and all things that matter to you matter to us. That would be me, Dr. Peter Sacco, host of this wonderful show put together by Todd Miller, my producer and co-host. So, Todd, how are you doing on this lovely April day? Excellent, excellent, excellent. Uh, putting up with the rain, but, you know, we can't complain. It's better than <laughs> the alternative. Yeah, wasn't that about a month ago to this day we were complaining about the alternative? Yeah, yeah, we always seem to touch on the weather. It's just, you know, part of being Canadian. I think it's written in our passport that we must complain about the weather at some point. And for those not living in the Canadian northern eastern area, we were referring to that dirty four-letter word that begins with S and ends with W, and it's white. <laughs> Snow. Yes. Yeah, so so we finally got that out of our system, and yes, April showers, as they say, this is a good thing, which brings May flowers, folks. So, let me ask you, I'll ask you, Todd, autism, when you hear the term autism, what does it mean to you? Well, as some listeners may know, it means a lot to me because I happen to have an autistic son who is going to be celebrating his seventh birthday later this month. Now, he has what is referred to as Asperger's syndrome, which has now been brought under the uh, autism spectrum disorder. Um, and uh, so it's also known as high functioning autism. You know more of this, more of this than I do. But um, so, yeah, um, my 10 second take on what autism is, is just the brain not being able to process some things that a lot of other people are able to process, whether it's noise, whether it's sensations, whether it's um, dealing with other people. They just, uh, people with autism have some unique challenges and some unique strengths, as I've been learning. Yeah, absolutely. And for those that um, have always or ever wondered what autism is, because it is, you know, it is a generic term nowadays because so many kids have gotten the diagnosis and in some cases the label um, of autism or autistic disorder, autistic spectrum disorder, or as you say, Todd, um, Asperger's, which is now clumped into ASD, which is autism spectrum disorder. All we basically know is that it is a developmental disability caused by differences in the brain. In fact, uh, leading experts do not know yet exactly what causes the differences within the brain uh, for individuals with ASD. But there is a link to it being a genetic uh, condition, and the, what you know when it boils down to it, Todd, the, there are multiple causes of ASD, but most are not yet known what actually causes it, you know, per se. No, and I know there's um, when you mention the term genetic, I know a lot of parents that I've met over the years have have taken it personally as if they passed on some defective gene to their child and you know they feel horrible about it but that's the thing i mean you know down syndrome uh, asd um, there are so many things that we pass to our children and it isn't necessarily going to be present just because we have it but it could be a unique combination of the mom and dad you know their genes get together in the kid and then they decide to do something a little a little different so it's not really anything that you should be 
blaming yourself for. That's one of the things I want to point on as a parent because, you know, I did that six years ago or five years ago when we were first dealing with it. It was like, oh, my goodness, is this something I could have prevented? Is it, you know, I drank too much. I drank too little. You know, you really start analyzing. And I think you just have to take a chill pill and and realize, okay, it's here. How do we handle it? How do we deal with it and, and move forward from where we are? And you know what, Todd? I'm glad you bring up the, you know, the notion that um, a lot of people, when they hear the term autism or they want to perceive it, they have one of two extremes. Uh, back in the 80s and in the early 90s, the extreme was very, how should we say, um, accented um, and defined to look like Dustin Hoffman in the mm. movie Rain Man starring yeah. Tom Cruise. And then, as you say, Todd, it goes to the other dichotomy or the other, you know, polarity where the individual is seen as being severely and developmentally challenged. But with that said, did you know, folks, that basically um, individuals with autism, their learning, thinking and problem solving abilities can range anywhere from gifted. And when we're saying gifted, we mean really, really cool, really, really smart, really, really intelligent and highly focused to obviously severely challenged. And some individuals with ASD definitely do need um, a lot of assistance in their lives, but for the most part, especially those with Asperger's um, and types of autism, they need less. In fact, they communicate, interact, behave, and learn ways in ways that are you know pretty much different from most people. But the key thing is they live, they enjoy life, and they're able to learn and interact on a normal basis. Um, yeah, that's the thing. They really need some, I mean, like you said, you touched on it. It's varying degrees. You know, I, I do know some people with kids that have uh, autism that are very low functioning and have very severe health challenges and, and, and other things going on. And then you get people that have mild autism and require far less intervention and support. And, you know, that's one of the things that's sort of challenging for me as a parent of a child that is uh, that has some unique challenges, but because is on the lower end of the spectrum, doesn't get a lot of health dollars directed their way. So we end up paying for a lot of stuff out of pocket. Luckily, we are able to do that, but I know there are a lot of families that can't. So I think as a society, we need to, especially because autism is on the rise and is continuing to grow, we probably need to direct some more you know, healthcare dollars towards it. You know what, absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, we're just scratching the surface when it comes to research and coming up with, you know, solutions, uh, coping strategies. And, you, you know, you might even, you know, you might even say, um, I'm not looking at an individual's autism and saying, you know what, they're normal within their own right, within their own way. And I, I think that's the key thing. You know, the, the individual, the person with autism has, if you want to call it, a, a disorder, um, a, a difference in the situation, the way that they, you know, experience the world. But we should not label them as having, you know, as being the autism themselves. And, and folks, for anybody listening that, once again, are trying to understand what autism is or some of the signs, I'm just going to throw out um, some of the more common red flags. This is, if you can go to any um, ASD sites or speak with any experts, this is generally what they look for. Generally, uh, parents will see something. Um, usually the signs don't show up until about 24 months or later, but here are some of the things to look for uh, with your kids. First of all, 
um, they're not responsive to their name by at least 12 months of age. So by 12 months of age, they're still not responding to their name. Um, they're not able um, to point at objects that show interest or something that's exciting to them by 14 months. So, you know, in kids' cribs or play toys, they have mobile stuff like that. Normally, kids are reaching, trying to touch. These kids do not show that kind of interest. Um, they don't play pretend games by 18 months. And a lot of kids, you know, you think, oh my God, they're only a year and a half. Are they playing pretend games? Absolutely. Uh, and then where you see more of the prevalent ones, like they avoid eye contact and want to be alone. Um, they have trouble understanding other people's feelings or talking about their own feelings. They have delayed speech and language skills. Uh, and here's a big one that usually oftentimes is a giveaway. They, they communicate through echolalia, which is repeating words or phrases over and over and over again, which it's almost like a, a Gregorian monk chant, where it only makes kind of sense to them. Mm -hmm. So it's very repetitive. They also give unrelated answers to questions. You're talking about apples. They may be talking about oranges, pineapples. They get upset by very minor changes. Um, they have very obsessive interests. Generally, they pick one or two interests. They're so obsessed with it. They're, and that's where they're kind of like the rain man sort of phenomenon happens with. They can just memorize and they know affluently every detail. They flap their hands, rock their bodies, or spin in circles. This is very common when you're looking at it from an observational standpoint, physiologically. And finally, they have unusual reactions to the way things around them smell, taste, look, or feel. Their way of perceiving and experiencing the world is a lot different from other individuals. Yeah, and you know, just one thing to know, uh, not all of those symptoms are available or, or present in every case. I mean, there's a whole mixed bag, and that's why it's so hard for doctors to diagnose, because while there are certain markers that are, are you, you know usually present, there are some that come and go. So doctors are saying, we're not sure if this is ASD, if it's ADHD, if it, you know, they have to do sort of a, a battery of, of tests to figure out, okay, what are we dealing with? And you know what, Todd, that is where the conundrum begins um, but never ends because nobody knows for sure. And in fact, originally we were supposed to have our guest on today who is an author, who's an individual that has autism themselves, that are still in school and they were going to talk about what it is to overcome. And we'll have that in individual on our show eventually and actually down the road. I've got a, a friend of mine, a colleague. A professional who's also a Nobel Prize winning doctor who is an expert in Canada on ADHD and I'm sure he will shed insights on you know as you say Todd that fine line between what is autism what is Asperger's what is ADHD and you know in some cases Todd the individual with uh, that is on the ASD spectrum disorder may have all of the above yes yeah and so Today we got a great guest. In fact, I, I'm really I'm gushing to have this guest on our show because she is um, a specialist in um, kids, especially individuals that have special needs. Um, and she spent 25 years working with children with autism. So who better than to have this individual on our show, Marcia Goldman, who will be our guest when we come back from our first break. Stay tuned. You're listening to Matters of the Mind on Listen Up Talk Radio. We'll be right back. The music you'll hear on Out of the Blue will be jazz for the most part. No specific styles or genres. Every piece of music is handpicked to deliver quality performances. 
Out of the Blue can be heard on rtds.ca, live Mondays 1 to 3 p.m., and encore performances Tuesday to Friday, anytime on demand. It's the true spirit of jazz, a touch of everything and then some. Thanks for listening. I'm Larry Green. Peter Andrew Sacco, and do you have technological rage? Oh yeah, the new rage of anger. Download my new book today, Technological Rage, on my website, www.petersacco.com, and learn what technological rage is and how it is sweeping people today, leading to online dating anger, texting anger, and social online networking forums. Hmm, did you ever think you might get angry texting? Facebooking or online dating, maybe you never thought it would happen to you, or maybe you know somebody that has this and you just need to understand it a little more. Welcome back to Mental Health Matters with your host, Dr. Peter Sacco. Well, hello there, and welcome back to Matters of the Mind, where everything and anything and all things that are on your mind matter to us. And by the way, folks, keep your emails, your messages on Facebook, uh, messages on Twitter coming to me or Todd Miller. We are definitely always excited to hear ideas for our show and stuff that definitely you want to talk about, especially anything near and dear to us that focuses on kids, kids' issues, mental health issues. It is going to be done and on our show. So, as we teased you before we were going to break, I am so, so very excited. I've waited to have this wonderful lady on our show now for, oh, well over a month. Her name is Marsha Goldman, who is a children's book author who also teams up with her five-pound Yorkie. For those that are not dog fans or love dogs, you're going to love her dog. And also, Lola, that is her dog. Uh, and she creates picture books that teach kids life lessons. But what is really, really, really important uh, that Marsha brings to our show today, uh, as we were talking before break, we we're talking about autism, the whole um, ASD uh, spectrum, the whole disorder, because she has spent uh, 25 years working with children with autism. Welcome to our show, Marsha. Thank you so much for having me. So, I guess uh, we always like to pick the beginning, the genesis, uh, whenever we have a guest on. So I guess the very first thing is, is autism um, and special education something that you always wanted to get into because it was something personal, near and dear to you, or did it just happen and evolve the time, Marcia? Um, actually, I started working with children with special needs when I was 12 years old. Um, it was just something that I spent most of my young adult and adult life doing and knew that that's what I wanted to do. I can't say that autism was something that I specifically you know, thought about working with or even knew anything about. Um, back 30 years ago, when I was in training, we barely talked about autism. Uh, it was on my credential as a category of children that I was qualified to work with. 
Um, but really there was very little understanding about autism or uh, what we might do with these kids. So it was, a, it was a daunting new world as I stepped into working with children on the spectrum. And 25 or 30 years ago when you first um, you know, encountered someone with autism, Autism was not at the fourth, you know, the four of our brains where it is now. There are so many uh, well-known celebrities that have either Asperger's or autism and are standing up and saying, yes, I have it and, and I'm functioning well. Mm-hmm. You know, 25 or 30 years ago, it was a little known disorder that probably didn't have, you know, a fraction of the resources available to it that are available these days. There were actually no resources uh, children who were diagnosed, um, when we barely said the word out loud, unfortunately, were put in classrooms with children with severe behavior disorders, which is probably, you know, the antithesis or the exact opposite of where those children belonged. And there was always something in my gut that said, this isn't right. This doesn't fit. There's more going on in these kids than people are giving them credit for. And um, I guess the good news was there was so little that you could kind of forge your own way. Um, The bad news is that I I, I did forge my own way, and a lot of my colleagues thought I was, you know, um, going off in a direction that they didn't approve of. So I, I, I did a lot of swimming upstream in the early days, but I'm happy to say we've we've come around a very long ways. Of course, back then it wasn't a spectrum disorder. It was, you know, very small uh, slice, um, and you had to have a, a whole lot of these behaviors to even get the diagnosis. So there were a lot of kids who weren't getting help. That were probably on the lower end of the spectrum that were just deemed to be behavioral behavior problems. Or different, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. And, and unfortunately, a lot of those kids ended up being diagnosed with, you know, learning delays. And so even worse, that they ended up in classrooms that uh, weren't giving them anything. Well, we were talking about that when we started the show today, Marcia, um, Todd and I. And I'm out of the field uh, as a psychologist many years now. But I remember back in the day, especially going into classrooms as a guest speaker and speaking um to other colleagues and professionals consulting on cases that they were uh, working on, child cases, that a lot of times these individuals, these kids, were being diagnosed with on the ADD, ADHD spectrum, mm-hmm. where in fact it was totally, they were way out there. And to make matters worse, yeah. I saw cases where they were trying to diagnose the kids with childhood schizophrenia. Now, do you see a lot of this still happening today? No, I think uh, we're doing a much, much better job of, um, and I think that's where the spectrum is helpful in that we're not uh, just throwing these kids into classrooms without thinking about what their specific needs are. I think we can get even better. And I think the future is to see this spectrum as you know, an overall label and that and that there's lots of different autisms within that spectrum and that each one of those needs to be looked at separately. You know, what what does that child need in terms of what the classroom looks like, what the sensory 
um, environment is, which is so key, uh, what the communications needs are, how is that child connecting to the world and the people around them, and really focus on what, what is specifically needed for that child. Now, the, the, child, the school that my child goes to um, is quite a unique school where they've embraced um, having a high population with autism, but still they're unaware of certain behaviors. For example, gym class, where they have mm-hmm. loud music to stimulate the kids. And, you know, some of the kids are just clapping their hands over their ears and they're like, yeah. what's wrong? And yeah. they're not aware of the whole sensory component. They are working towards it, which is great. But there are still a vast number of, of educational facilities that um, have no clue. And there are right. teachers that are woefully unprepared yes. to deal with these kids. And my heart breaks because... Yeah. They, and it's no fault of their own. I mean, they haven't been exposed to it. Um, I guess, I, what what can we do to help these people? Is, does there seem to be does there need to be a, like a national strategy for autism awareness within the school systems? And that is so key to working with these children that the sensory piece has to come first. And that was my cry from the beginning, and that's where I, you know, was seen as, you know not really in the mainstream at all, is that we put the sensory piece first, even if that meant being in a tiny room with the child, um, working one-on-one until they were able and ready to deal with the sensory and really work on that piece, as well as, you know, these kids, many of them have difficulty with communication, and if you don't recognize that and give them any way of communicating, then the frustration builds. And so those two pieces, even before you work on having them connect or learn or anything else, have to be key. And I agree with you, that needs to be much more of a movement. Um, I, I used to say that I got to be the sensory detective and I would come in and look like I had solved these giant issues and it always was about one piece of sensory that the classroom wasn't thinking about or the teacher hadn't thought about. But it's amazing that you mentioned that because if I've found just through, you know, informal research and, and from, uh, you know, studying my own child and other children in the school, if you take care of the sensory, yep. a lot of the other uh, behaviors are minimized. Certainly the ones that would uh, society would consider to be, you know, uh, uh, disruptive. Absolutely. I love one of my examples. I had a family who... You know, their biggest heartbreak is their son wouldn't sit down at the dinner table with them. And would I come over over and create a behavior plan? Um, hate those words. Mm-hmm. And I walked in and realized uh, that the dining room table was in this room with louvered shutters. And so the light coming in at that time of day was just, you know, ridiculously difficult for that child. Um, and I said to them, how would you feel about eating in the kitchen? And they said, I don't care where we eat as long as we are all together. And I said, well, let's move the dining room table into the kitchen and see what happens tonight. And from that point on, they ate as a family. And all I did was change one sensory piece for that child. So everyone I train, that's what I, those are the eyes and ears and feelers that I put on them. Be a sensory detective first. Create an environment that is even going to begin to allow this child to move through through the world. 
So, Marsha, let me ask you this then, in terms of your experiences then going into classrooms, being around kids and that. Um, are teachers and are counselors doing enough within the school systems then, um, in terms of, how should we say, climatizing other kids that are around individuals that have not only, you know, um, autism, Asperger's, or ADHD, but to make them more aware that these children may have differences, but it doesn't make them weird, really different, uh, or you know, diseased. Are schools creating this sensitivity that can amalgamate all these kids so everybody fits in and everybody can kind of coexist, but also enjoy life together? I hope so. I certainly hope so. I know our program um, in San Jose, one of the things we did was to blend typical children in with our um, spectrum kids because I do think they have great empathy. Um, and that's actually how I started um, way back was in Sacramento was the pilot program for mainstreaming and it just seemed like we were doing it so backwards and I wanted to create a program not necessarily for children with autism but with all special needs because I think children that are of the right age and, and with the right role models do get it. They get it before the adults get it. They, they know that maybe they shouldn't get so close or come from behind or respect not to touch another child without, you know, being sure that that child's okay with it. So I think, I think our little ones are our best teachers. And when I worked with families one-on-one, -on -one, if they had a sibling, the sibling was the first person that I worked with. And, and I said, they're, they're your best therapist. Um, so hopefully that's happening. So do you find that at a certain age, um, a child that is on the spectrum uh, will say, hey, I, do they actually become cognizantly aware that, hey, I am different or I feel different? Is there that aha moment where, you know, they're looking around them, they're looking around at other kids and saying, why am I so different? I think that's the heartbreaking part of my 25 years is when we discovered that there were ways for, especially for our kids that didn't have verbal communication, whether it was, you know, using a communication board or, or picture icons, I think they're aware of that from, the, from a very young age. And they think all they want is to be understood and um, help to be in environments that are safe for them. I think, you know, a lot of the, the stuff that we threw on these kids, that they didn't have feelings, they couldn't emote, is just, and, and that they couldn't learn is so untrue. They want to do all those things. Um, and one of the first things I did in taking over a program in San Jose with children from 8 to 21 is say stop teaching them as if they're you know four and five years old even though we'll never be able to prove what their cognitive level is we're going to teach them at whatever level whatever age group they are if they're 12 we're going to teach them 12 year old stuff um, because we test these kids and they test low because they don't have the ability to let us know and it's so unfair 
I want to just share one resource before we before I ask your question. Uh, for those of you again that are still struggling with what autism is and what it feels like, there's there's an amazing video on YouTube. Just go to YouTube and type in what autism feels like, and it's mm-hmm. it's it's a harrowing watch. It's really mm-hmm. really tough. And I know my child's school is starting to show that to the greater population of the school to make the kids that are not struggling with ASD mm-hmm. aware of what their classmates are struggling with because mm-hmm. it's a bit of a challenge. But um, my little guy does know that he is different, and he has no sense of humor. He laughs at things, but he doesn't generally laugh where other people laugh, where there's a um, a joke. You know, he'll laugh at a physical pratfall, but as far as a joke goes, he has to look at you and he goes, are you tricking me? Are you joking? And he, he needs that sort of, um, you know, investigation, uh, that question to ask what it is that, that's happening. Um and I guess the bigger issue is I don't want to label it. Like when he says later in life or we, we sit down and talk to him when maybe he's 10 and say and try and explain what it is that he's going through because we don't want to label it, but we want to put some handles around it so that he has a good appreciation of where his struggles are and will be in the future potentially and, and give him some sort of comfort that he knows, okay, this is what it is. This is what I'm feeling what is what you're feeling on on labeling versus trying to explain it and put some sort of parameters around it for people that have it? Well, I, I think labels are difficult because we keep changing them. Um, but I think using language to to help him understand why he's not getting the joke. So children on the spectrum are very black and white. They don't. It's very difficult for them to reference outside of exactly what's happening um, in the moment. And it's one of the reasons that if something is changed, um, it's so difficult for them to, you know, adjust quickly as we might. So, so what if the, if the living room got rearranged or you painted the walls blue or mom went out and got a perm? And those things are very unsettling. If the shirt isn't in the drawer in exactly the right place. And so we talk a lot, again, it's about the sensory, but this time it's about where it's organized and goes in my brain. And so, you know, teasing and joking takes a lot of outside referencing. I have to, I have to remember what, what the real thing is and then realize, oh, this is a joke. And that's very difficult. So I think talking about it that way, I do an exercise long before YouTube, but thank you, YouTube, for having that video. I haven't seen it, but I already love you for it. Uh, Every teacher, every parent, anyone interacting um, with these kids needs to experience what it's like to have your sensory world just bombarded. And I always would do an exercise where one person had to sit in a chair, but that chair was a little tipped. And then, you know, the lights were being flicked on and uh, loud plastic spoons were being rattled in a paper bag and, you know, smelly ink pens underneath your nose and somebody standing behind you and scratching the back of your neck. And all these things are happening at one time. And then somebody in the middle of the room is reading a story. And when it's all over, you know, I pretty predictably would say to to the victim, you know, how did you like the story? And the answer always would be, what story? And that's what it's like for our kids in a classroom or that gym room or, you know, any of those scenarios. Um, and so I think 
if you experience it and you can talk to him about, gee, I, I just did this and it was really scary or really difficult for me, um, that that, you know, will really help him to understand that you get it. Uh, Marcia, we have to go to break in two minutes, but before we go to break, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you this question that a lady just sent me on Facebook. And okay. she wanted to know, are there more instances of the whole autism, uh, Asperger's disorders occurring now? Um, or have they always been, but they were just not picked up or diagnosed? The million dollar question. Um, personally, and this is just me, um, I think that we do a much better job of diagnosing. We've certainly broadened the the diagnostic, you know, with by by adding a spectrum. But I don't think it explains the numbers that we have. So I'm one of those holdouts that is not going to say it's just better diagnosis or my, more diagnosis. I do think we have a significant increase. Yeah, and I think, you know, what's key for everybody listening, it's not whether numbers are up or down, but the key issue is that the disorder gets diagnosed and the proper interventions and measures are made. And so with that, we go to our break, and when we come back, we are going to talk more with Marsha, um, not only about autism, but also Lola. We will be right back. Can't wait to meet Lola. You're listening to Matters of the Mind on Listen Up Talk Radio at talk-radio.ca. Buying or selling a home, condo, or investment property may be one of the largest transactions you'll ever make. It's important to gather as much information as you can, and preferably from experienced, successful professionals. When it comes time to make your move, call the Mulholland Ross Real Estate Team with Keller Williams Real Estate Service at 416-230-8500 or visit www.realestatetoronto.com. Whether you're making your first move or selling your much-loved family home, the Mulholland Ross Team offers over 26 years of real estate sales and service across the GTA. Listen every Sunday at 4 p.m. here on Radio That Doesn't Suck to hear the team share advice and information that will assist you with your personal wealth through real estate. Questions or topics you'd like to see covered? Email info at realestatetoronto.com or call the Mulholland Ross Team at 416-230-8500. Welcome to my new book, Niagara's Most Haunted Legends and Myths, which is not just a book about ghosts and haunted places, rather about history in the Niagara region. This book explores and uncovers parts of the Niagara region which are considered some of the richest in North American history and the most haunted. As a matter of fact, one of the bloodiest battles in North American history, the War of 1812, between the British and the Americans was fought here. And this year, the bicentennial year anniversary of the War of 1812 is covered in this book. This book explores most of the haunted places, legends that have existed from the 1800s right now to 2012. Each chapter covers a different type of landmark which not only educates readers on historical significances, but also entertains with anecdotal ghost stories and paranormal investigations. Join me in this book as we visit beds and breakfasts, ships and boats, trains, tunnels, museums, mansions, highways, forts, cemeteries, waterfalls, and many more, and see if the Niagara region is really haunted. Niagara's Most Haunted Legends and Myths is now available at Indigo Chapters and online on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. And visit our website, www.niagara'smosthaunted.com. 
Be afraid. Be very afraid. Welcome back to Mental Health Matters with Dr. Peter Sacco on radio that doesn't suck.com and rtds.ca. Welcome back to Matters of the Mind, where everything on your mind matters to us. And we've got a very special, awesome guest on our show. We've been talking about autism, the whole spectrum, and how we can become more sensitive, more understanding, and what we can do to be better advocates and better helpers in the field, as we have our special guest, Marsha Goldman. So, Marsha, I have a very, very important question for you. <laughs> okay. We know about Lola. Lola is your five-pound Yorkshire Terrier. But who the heck is Tattletail Zeke? <laughs> We're going to go right to that, huh? You got it. Well, Zeke is uh, our second Yorkie, who is quite a bit bigger. He's eight pounds, whole eight pounds. Um, and we were actually... Uh, asked if we would write a book on tattletailing because it's a big subject um, in first and second and third grade. And of course, the sensitivity around wanting children to feel empowered to tell if you know something's happening in their lives or they know something is happening in someone else's life to be you know, helpful, but at the same time, tattletailing is hurtful. And so what is the difference between telling to help someone and telling to get someone in trouble? And um, so that's how Tattletail Zeke came around, and Zeke is actually a very sweet boy, but he got to be in this book as <laughs> the Tattletail. The book is absolutely awesome for anybody listening. Definitely get out there, read it as uh, your teacher parent you want a great book for your kids this is it so before we get into more of the book i need to ask you the question okay mm -hmm. on the cover which is a beautiful cover you've got your two terriers <laughs> and obviously the cover looks like it is staged it's just too perfect <laughs> there's shaving cream on the floor cotton balls two rubber duckies and something that looks like perhaps aspirins on the floor or some sort of medicine. So with that said, have you ever walked into your own house, Marcia, and found those two dogs sitting next to something like that, that they really did create themselves? Oh, yes. We had a picture on Facebook about a year ago. They had somehow gotten a roll of toilet paper, and you wouldn't have believed what they did with it. It was everywhere. So one of the things that I, I really like about this is your dog, if for all intents and purposes, is called or labeled a therapy dog. She is. Uh, she's a certified therapy dog. So, what would that entail? Uh, what, how do you how do you get a therapy dog? Well, um, you start with the basic training, and I retired from working in the field of autism in 2010 and was talking to a friend about, you know, now I was going to have all this spare time, and she said, why don't you get your dog certified as a therapy dog? You get to go into schools and hospitals and all kinds of fun things. And I thought, what a way to legitimize spending my entire day with my dog. So I made a few phone calls, and initially I was told that they thought she was probably too little to be a therapy dog, and I think some of that might have been that she was a Yorkshire Terrier, and they're not 
necessarily the kind of dog that will go up to any person. But I just had a sense about Lola, so we persevered. It took us about six or eight months. We had to go through all the basic obedience and then the next intermediate level, and then she was checked out by someone who does the certifying and given the go-ahead. And then you go through something called canine good citizenship training, which was about another eight or ten weeks of training. And then she has to pass a pretty extensive test that shows that she would be able to handle loud noises, wheelchairs, things being dropped, people poking at her ears, pulling her tail. And then she actually um, has to be seen by a, a dog behaviorist and pass another test. And then um, I'm pretty sure I was being tested as well. And then uh, routine medical exam, and then you finally are told, okay, you're good to go. She's a certified therapy dog, and then you pick a group to join and start the journey. It, it's amazing. Um, about a year and a half ago, my son and I were just absentmindedly flicking the channels on a Saturday afternoon, and we happened upon a show called Dogs with Jobs. And normally wouldn't catch my attention, but I noticed the dog was tethered to a boy, and the boy had some obvious um, uh, challenges, uh, nonverbal, uh, very uncoordinated. But when this dog was tethered to him, he was a uniquely different child. Mm -hmm. um, and I know with kids with autism, one of the things they struggle with is empathy. Mm -hmm. And yet these therapy dogs can draw the empathy out of them. Why is and it? I, every time we go into the classroom, there's another miracle. Some I know, some I can see in front of my eyes, and some I hear about later. Um, and there is a difference between service dogs and therapy dogs. So Lola is a therapy dog, which means I take her into these different settings. Uh, probably what you were seeing was a dog that mm -hmm. was trained as a service dog to work with children on the spectrum, which is a big thing right now, and they're amazing. Um, but Lola just has an uncanny sense of which child needs her. Um, and w I've watched a little girl speak for Lola, who never had talked out loud in the classroom before. Wow. Um, and, you know, there might be a child who's having a difficult day and flailing and maybe making screeching noises, a kind of you know, behavior you wouldn't think a dog would want to be around. And Lola, on her own, will just go over and sit close to that child until they calm down, which happens almost immediately in her presence. And then, you know, when the child is calm, she comes back to me and kind of looks at me like, so what are you doing? <laughs> but it's amazing that, that kids can just let the barriers drop and interact mm -hmm. with these whether it's a service dog or a therapy dog and really connect with them it's just the most innocent of relationships and we had one experience where this little child was quite nervous around Lola and would stay in the very back of the room when we were there and then each week get a little closer and a little closer and finally join circle which I thought was amazing enough and then um a couple months later, I got a letter from the parents. Apparently, the sibling's favorite thing to do was to go to the petting zoo. But this little child was terrified about being around the animals. And so it always meant a split family trip. Um, they never got to go all together. And then Lola, he started coming home and saying, I pet Lola, I pet Lola. 
And so they thought, well, let's give it a try. And the letter was about the fact that for the first time ever, they were able to take this family trip to the petting zoo and be all together. <laughs> you know, you can't ask for more than that. So with these books, Marcia, um, it, are these books geared for parents and teachers to sit down and read them with the kids? And, and, and I'm guessing it could be any child for that matter, irregardless yeah. of whether they have autism, ADHD, or whatever. And so it's actually what I find is a great communication tool. Mm-hmm. Thank you. They started because as I would bring her into the classroom, um, the, we found that the children sat longer in circle than they had ever been able to sit before. And so she asked me if I would add a story time to our visit. And I said, of course, and started looking for books that I felt could relate, that they would relate to Lola, kind of an unusual um, opportunity that they would get to see Lola, feed Lola, pet Lola, and then hear a story about Lola. And I wanted photographs because I knew that our little ones on the spectrum have a, a difficult time with illustrations, especially if they're not uh, very realistic. And so honestly, I'm not an author and I'm not a photographer. And all I thought was go on one of those websites where you can plug in a picture and write a line on the bottom. Um, and some, someone asked me, how did you decide how many, you know, uh, words in your sentences? Because your sentences are so, you know, concise and short. And I said, that's how many characters they would let me <laughs> type in. N nothing fancy here. Um, and so the books in originally were just for me to have something to bring into the classroom with pictures of Lola and get the first one um, and then a couple more, and then somebody said, you really need to write about Lola going to work and being told she was too little. And that was the one that um, my publisher, Marissa Moss, uh, saw and wanted to do something with. So being published and, and having these um, out there for the public was, was certainly not my original intent, but it gives me great joy to know that um, they're in the hands of of kids and teachers and librarians. And I was just looking at your website. I cannot believe that you got a testimonial from Lassie because uh. <laughs> that would be like me releasing a CD and having, you know, someone from Pink Floyd say, hey, great work. But that's... <laughs> well, that's, you know, they were both working dogs. What can I say? Um, where do you see this going for the future in terms of the books? Do you see them morphing into DVDs or, or audio books or something? I mean, I guess because also children um, engage in various manners because yeah. I was at a meeting um, at my child's school a while ago and we were talking about um, things. We saw a wonderful video about a boy who was nonverbal and uh, very low interactivity with his parents. And then... All of a sudden, they started playing Disney DVDs and Disney mm -hmm. movies. And right. oh, all of a sudden, Lion King came on and he started right. singing. And that's what I'm thinking. Maybe there's, there's different ways of kids ingesting this information. Yeah, it's a great idea. Um, we've talked about them being on CDs um, or, or some, something ebook-like. Um, and at the moment, uh, really working on people knowing that beyond the book there's not only teacher-parent question guides in the back of each book, but on the website there's full 
fleshed out curriculum, um, both for teachers uh, with kids on the spectrum, but also for all teachers and librarians to take each one of these issues and, and take it further. So overall, you know, and I've always found this, I, th- I really do believe if you look at nature and, you know, we include animals in here, I, mm. I, I think it, it, it's a universal subject, I think, irregardless of which walk of life you're from, <laughs> what age you are, what gender you are, anything, I think we can all relate at that level, which is, I think, a great level, Marcia. Um, so overall, uh, I'm, I'm curious, from your dog's perspective, um, how engaging are they? They must really love this attention, eh? She seems to love it. Um, she loves book tour. She seems to know she's on. Uh, on a regular week, uh, we work in three different places. So once a week we go to the elderly care center and we visit about 20 different um, people there. On another day, we go to the elementary school for the read aloud program and she sits and listens to 18 different children read to her for five minutes. And then we do the um, preschool autism classroom. Um, And as soon as I say it's time to go to work, her little ears perk up, she goes to the back bench to get her scarf on and off we go. And she just seems to know what her job is. And on book tour, she can sit on the book table while I sign books and talk to people and she gets her picture taken and she can do that for hours. She just loves it. So um, I think she was born to do this, I guess. You know what, I'm a, you know what, Marsha, I'm a huge dog person. In fact, um, I've had huskies in the past, and what's interesting with them, you look at their jobs, they're the ones who mm-hmm. pull, the, pull the sled, so we get the brawn. I've had the brawn dogs, and you got the intellectual dog. <laughs> you would think the uh, Yorkie is, uh, yeah, I don't know much about them, but I do know from the ones I've met that they seem a little high-strung, and, and I'm, not, I'm not getting that feeling. I'm getting that feeling Uh-oh. that she's very calm, very centered. Very very calm and and that's i think why we were probably told maybe not such a good idea to be a therapy dog but she she's extremely calm she loves all people little big um she's she's very aware around um some of the elderly that they might be a little more grabby and she she positions herself in a way that says okay i'm ready um, and I feel like my job is to be super sensitive to how she's feeling. Uh, Zeke is the sweetest, kindest little dog, a therapy dog he would not make. He would not sit quietly while people went by him and petted him. He wouldn't sit quietly in the classroom while 18 children read to him. Um, he's not a high-strung dog, but he just wouldn't make a therapy dog. So I think you just kind of know your dog and what they can handle and uh she she just has it so i'm lucky absolutely absolutely uh that is so awesome um we've got a couple minutes left marcia we don't want to let you go but we're going to have to so before we let you go i want you to leave parting shots with our listeners um tell us where they can learn more about you learn more about your books lola zeke and anything to do with what you're promoting with autism Well, the website is, I'm always bad at this, um, MarshaGoldman.com is the website. And you can find us on Facebook at Lola the Therapy Dog. And each one of those words is capitalized. 
and I'm looking at the site. You can get them from Amazon, obviously. Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and then um, if the independent bookstore in your neighborhood doesn't have it, they're always um, quite willing to get it. Um, she also has a little plush now, a little plush Lola. Wow, that'd be great for the kids to uh, <laughs> with her little red scarf. Can you get it autographed? Well, that would be hard, but if what's cute is the little tag on it looks like she's carrying her own set of books. Kids seem to like that. And there's actually a curriculum on the website just for the plush dog so that teachers and librarians who don't have a Lola present can use the plush dog instead. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Uh, Marsha, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for joining our show. Um, definitely you are an inspiration to us all listening. Um, and I'm sure anybody, uh, any parent out there or any teacher that uh, works in the field with special needs probably will consider uh, your visit on our show a godsend. So thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you, Lola, and I so appreciate it. She was very quiet, and I appreciate that this morning. <laughs> You're listening to Matters of the Mind. We're going to take a really short break, and we'll be back on the flip side. of the mind and as always we got tremendous guests that don't only bring something great to our table but they make our show is you know perfect and, and i guess that's the, the the only word i can use is perfect they're the ones that it's all about them that definitely bring great insights great knowledge and great experiences each and every week and definitely share wisdom with you yeah stellar guest today um that has had real-world experience in the world of autism, but now has developed some tools, and, and they are tools. I mean, the books are incredible, and, and then having the little plush toy in place of the real dog, I mean, maybe we could find some money to fly <laughs> fly Lola up here for a, a whirlwind tour of southern Ontario, I don't know, but I think it's uh, some great stuff that's coming from Marsha. Absolutely. Definitely, folks, check out Marsha Goldman's website, um, read her books, as I said, she is an inspiration, and if you are a teacher, you are a parent, um, or a counselor, and you want to learn more about autism, I think she's a great starting point. And definitely, definitely, definitely um, tune in next week. we got another great guest, Krish K.S. Ram, who is a author himself, uh, a very um, intriguing individual. You see, Krish uh, actually one day found his life in shambles um, after... Things just totally fell apart. He decided to leave everything behind and went on one of these life's journeys. Um, basically, he embarked on a three-year journey through five countries on three continents from a village in his homeland of India, um, went all the way to China and beyond. And what did he solve and what did he try to figure out? The fact that he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, his depression and anxiety were so bad, he bottomed out. And after seven years of treatment, he is back and he's got a great message to share. 
incredible. And uh, we want you to tune in. We also want your feedback. Uh, if you heard something you really enjoyed, um, please reach out, send us an email, drop us a message on Facebook or Twitter at Listen Up Talk Radio. And we'll catch you right back here next Wednesday at 8 p.m. on talk-radio.ca. You've been listening to Matters of the Mind on Listen Up Talk Radio with your host, Dr. Peter Andrew Sacco. Reach him on his website, petersacco.com, or you can reach him through Listen Up at talk-radio.ca. We really thank you for listening. Reach out to us on Facebook, facebook.com slash listenuptalkradio, on Twitter at at listenuptalk. We'll catch you next week. You don't need no pills. That man is not your man. And that's why I'm...